It is not typical of me when we, when we have one of these, it's often the case when we have these Wednesday night studies that we're, we're tracking along uh, with, a, with a published book that we're using sort of as an overall guide. For this course, we're using R.C. Sproul's The Mystery of the Holy Spirit, which is a phenomenal book, as an overall guide. Uh, most of us, certainly me included, usually use the appropriate chapters of that book as a, as, of the book we're following along, as sort of a jumping off point to develop the material that we're gonna share. Chapters three and four of Sproul's book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit, deal with the mystery of the Trinity. And I have no hope of polishing up Sproul's material on the Trinity. So if you've got the book and have read it, and tonight sounds like I'm being a plagiarist, I hope that I am summarizing it. I hope that I'm not just plain ripping it off. But if I am just plain ripping it off, I could do way worse. Um, so tonight, the mystery of the Trinity. Before we go further into the specific functions and ministries of God the Holy Spirit, we need to lay some orthodox Trinitarian groundwork. So, to recount and recap last week, if you were here, or to bring you up to speed if you weren't, last week we developed and, and established biblically two very, very important ideas that will be foundational to the rest of our study. The first of the ideas we worked on last week is that God the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he. He has a mind. He has a will. He can be grieved. He is a person. He is not an effect. He is not a force. He is not some omnipresent fog. When we, when we speak concerning him, he is he. He is not it. Uh, I, I shared with you that I know of a couple of instances where uh, friends in the charismatic movement have spoken of God the Holy Spirit as an it, as though, um, you know, did, did you get it? Um, have you gotten it? Their, their view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and perhaps, to give them the most credit, they mean the baptism as the it, but it awfully, awfully much sounds like, as a practical matter, they're referring to God the Holy Spirit as an it. Don't. Um, he is also not a mode. One of, the, um, one of the oldest theological errors regarding the Trinity, an error that goes back to the, at least the second century, is an error called modal, M-O-D-A-L, modalism. And modalism, in order to, a modalist would tell you that what they're doing is protecting the monotheistic character of the worship of the living God, the protecting the idea that there is only one God. And so they would say that that one God sometimes manifests himself in God the Father mode, and sometimes 
he shows up as God the Son mode. And sometimes he shows up as God the Holy Spirit mode. But those are basically three different... Well, what's the synonym for mode? Three different um, non-simultaneous, non-coexistent, just God puts on his God the Father suit, or he puts on his God the Son suit, or he puts on his God the Spirit suit, so to speak. And, and, and that modalistic error, or error would make God the Spirit just a mode, not a separate person. He is a person. Further, second thesis that we established last week is that that person, God the Holy Spirit, is God. He is co-eternal with the Father. He has the creative attributes of the Father. He is omniscient like the Father. Every, everything that is true of deity is true of the person of God, the Holy Spirit. So that's what we left here last week having established. That God, the Holy Spirit is a person and God, the Holy Spirit is God. Not a God, not an inferior sub-God. We'll talk about some of that in a bit. But he's God. Beyond the scope of our course, although Sproul spends some time on it, particularly in his chapter 4, I'm trying to be disciplined in how we use time. Beyond the scope of this course, do y'all know the term stipulate as, as it's used in legal proceedings? It's a great term. It's when, there's, when there is some point that could be argued somewhere, but for the purpose of our proceeding, we're going to introduce this fact, and we're all going to accept that it's a fact without any evidence or any interrogation. Often, for example, in a trial, if, some, if something depends on the, when the high tide was on a certain date, the, the parties in the trial, to save themselves having to call in 15 expert witnesses from NOAA, they'll stipulate that the record shows that high tide that morning was at 632. And unless you want me to bring in 10 expert witnesses that you then have to cross-examine, let's just look it up and agree that the resources are accurate and we will stipulate to the fact that that's when the high tide was or whatever other fact we can agree on and save our... Okay, at the end of the day, the fact's going to stand and let's not put the jury through two days of extra testimony for a fact that isn't really in question. So tonight for us, I'm going to stipulate a couple of things about Jesus. If this were a course on the deity of Christ, we would, which we just did, right? So well, we will stipulate that Jesus Christ is a person. Okay, can we agree with that? Good. Further, we will stipulate for our purposes, Jesus Christ is God. Entirely God, but not merely God. You know the difference, right? He is entirely God in the sense that he is 100% human. He is not, I mean, he is not merely God in that he is 100% he is deity and 100% human, 
simultaneously in a way that completely protects the essential definition of what it is to be human and what it is to be God. He is not a 50-50 mix of God and man. He is a 100 and 100 expression of entirely God and entirely man. So, our story so far, God the Holy Spirit and God the Son are both persons. God the Holy Spirit and God the Son are both God. They are not unsimultaneous modes. Jesus did not turn into the Holy Spirit. The Father in Bethlehem did not turn into the Son when Jesus was born. Okay. That's the groundwork for our groundwork. Here we go. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 39, Jesus is asked, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one, it's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great and first commandment. Now, he doesn't mean first chronologically. Because Jesus is quoting there Deuteronomy chapter 6. The, uh, the Shema of Israel. The hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It is the most prevalent verse in all of Jewish worship liturgy. Deuteronomy 6.5. It's not chronologically the first commandment that was ever given. By the time we get to Deuteronomy 6, the living God's given mankind lots of commandments. But Deuteronomy 6.5 is the formulation of the primary of all commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Um, very similar to what Ecclesiastes concludes is kind of the heart of the matter, right? Love God, serve Him. Most of the rest of it, you're chasing wind. All right? Jesus called it the highest pinnacle, the greatest commandment. Everything else hangs on it. Further, the the first commandment of the ten. I bet y'all know this one. Of the ten commandments, what is number one? It's Exodus 20, verse 3, but you don't have to look it up, I bet. What is the first of the ten commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. By the way, just as a rabbit, while I was... I, I, I think I confess Sunday that my pastorate in Kentucky did not go well. I was a bit of a meanie. One night I was in an adult Bible study with a group about this size. And some jurisdiction somewhere, I don't remember whether it was one of the school boards or whether it was something happening in the Kentucky state government, was in a flap about the Ten Commandments and the display of the Ten Commandments in classrooms. And I did a slightly mean thing. I asked the adults, stand up if you believe the Ten Commandments should be displayed on the classroom wall. And essentially everybody stood up. And I said, now sit down if you can't recite them. 
Because <laughs> you could have them on your wall at home, and evidently you haven't had them there enough to memorize them. It was an embarrassing number of people that sat down, and they looked at me unkindly as they did. Yeah, y'all think y'all are off the hook because I'm messing with them. If the Ten Commandments are a big deal to you, you ought to know them, right? No other gods before me does not mean do not have any gods that you rank ahead of me. That's not what the sense of the sentence is. It is not, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he doesn't mean, I will, don't you make me number five and some other god number one, two, three, four. What he's saying is, have no other gods in the area which I can survey. Before me, have no other gods. And before me encompasses all that is in his omniscience. If you, if you exist, you are before God. God is observant of you. Don't have any gods in the space I can observe. Have no gods before me. It's a, it's a, it's a very stark encouragement. If you're going to love him with everything you've got, and you're going to obey his commandment not to have any other gods, you are going to be stringently monotheistic. You are going to hold to the one true God. Now, down their history, Israel messed that up a time or two or three or ten, drifting in and out of various sorts of idolatry. But by the time Israel had, had gone into exile, and largely when the nation of Israel was sort of reformed by the time Christ was born, it was still a jumbled up mess but monotheism was back with a bullet. In fact, the Roman Empire had three rules for conquered territory. The administrative genius of the Roman Empire, once they brought their army in, put their foot on your throat, and raised their flag, and said to you, welcome to the Roman Empire. You are now a subject. <coughs> Have a nice day. In the aftermath of that, there were only three, broadly speaking, only three requirements. Number one, tax money. I mean, why have an empire if you're not going to get paid, right? The whole point was to leech wealth out of the conquered territories. So you will pay your taxes. Number two, under the authority of the civil government, which can be arranged kind of any way you like it. You can have whatever local leaders you want. That's why the Jerusalem Council is still so powerful during the ministry of Jesus. It's why Herod and that dynasty still gets to strut about calling themselves kings. Because Rome doesn't care as long as the tax money flows and you maintain decent civil order. Remember the riot at Ephesus in Acts 19? The governor of the, or the mayor of the city warns the Ephesians, if we don't cool this off, we're in danger of losing control of our own city because this riot mess doesn't fly with our Roman overlords. So number one, pay your taxes. The empire is going to get paid. Number two, maintain civil order with kind of, sort of, whatever local government you want to leave in place, which is really great for Rome because then they don't have to staff all these local governments. Let the locals do it. And then the third one. Since you are probably polytheistic anyway, 
You got a whole shelf full of gods. Worship the emperor as God. Worship Caesar as God. No big deal. Just put him on the shelf with the other 10 or 12 or 15 or 20. What do you care? The Jews wouldn't do it. After the Roman Empire swept in and took over Israel, they found that the Jews would rather die than worship Caesar as God. And barring inheritance tax, how much tax money does a dead person pay? <laughs> Zero. Bad for business. And the whole reason to have an empire, again, is to enrich Rome, right? So the Roman Empire made an had to make an exception for the Jews. The Jews did not have to worship Caesar as God. That's how adamantly they're monotheistic. So to recap, biblically and historically, one God. I mean, one God. And don't you even talk to me about other gods, paraphrasing the first commandment. That is God the Father saying, God the Father is a person and God the Father is God. And there's not but one God, according to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, I am one. God the Spirit is God. God the Son is God. Now, some people, historically, down the history of the church, have gotten all worked up that the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. They're right. But the conclusion, the concept, if the Word of God teaches that there is only one God, and it does, and the Word of God teaches that God the Holy Spirit is a person who is God, God the Son is a person who is God, and God the Father is a person who is God, then there you have the Trinity. And that is where Christianity, in fact, every, every historical branch of Christianity has agreed on the Trinity. Every attempt to work to work your way out of the Trinity has ended in heresy, ancient or modern. Um, Sproul suggests this formulation, which is, uh, I had not heard the, if I had heard this specific formulation before, I had missed it. Sproul says it is an historical, it's so commonly used in church history, he doesn't give a specific source for it. It's all over the place. This formulation, God is one in essence, three in person. Okay, Let's, we, will, we will play with that a bit. God is one in essence, three in person. By the way, this is a confessional formulation. This is using words from outside of Scripture to help lean in and etch out solid meaning from words and ideas that are in Scripture. We're warned in Ephesians 5, 6 
to let no one um, deceive us. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What are empty words? Sproul makes the case, and I agree with him, that empty words are words that have been stripped of their right meaning and emptied of content. We take the shell of a word, but we ream it out. The, the, the Jehovah's Witness use of the word God in John 1.1 in the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness New Testament, which is not a translation. It's an abomination. They render uh, John 1.1. Do you know this? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and what do they say? Amen. The word was a God. You see what they've done? They've emptied out the word God. The word, if, if there you can even say such thing as a God and not mean the God, you've turned the three letters G-O-D into an empty word that you have stuffed with something that doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. We have an example. I enjoyed this news. Has anybody but me seen in on, on, on whatever news sources or news feeds you watch the, uh, the, the guy that's suing Buffalo Wild Wings over their boneless wings? Has anybody else but me seen that lawsuit? It's fantastic. This guy, this guy thinks he's on to something that is noteworthy, epic scale fraud for which he has suffered financial harm and therefore ought to sue because he discovered that the boneless wings at Buffalo Wild Wings are in fact chunks of breast meat. They're not wings. They're not, nobody out there is breeding chickens with wings that don't have bones in them. More funny than his suit was the very savvy response from Buffalo Wild Wings on their social media. They have responded. Basically, we want to get ahead of this so we confess there is no ham in our hamburgers. <laughs> Further, Buffalo don't have wings. You're on to us. We let Buffalo Wild Wings replace word meanings with other words. You know, if you've ever eaten, if you've ever eaten crab with a K in a sushi, that wasn't crab with a C. That's a different thing. But when you begin to empty out biblical terms and stuff them with new meaning, well, theological language and things like confessions and creeds exist to give us an, a lens or a latticework whereby we can say scripture, what scripture is saying is this and not that. We can, we can carve out specific meanings. Arius was a priest. He lived from the year 250 to the year 336. Merle, speaking of church fathers, I guess his, his age bracket or his era would put him among them. But he was a heretic. Arius held that Jesus was a created being. Now, he was the first created being. And by the time you get to the creation of Genesis 1, he has already been created and has had conferred upon him godness. 
He's not God. He's a God. This same Aryan error, by the way, drives the two great American quasi-Christian cults. The Watchtower, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints. If you have a... I have a good friend that I work with that's a Mormon, and they're just so nice, and I talk to them at lunch, and they just believe everything we believe. Sweetest Christian woman I ever met. Doesn't drink caffeine, but other than that. <laughs> because in your conversation with them, you can use a lot of the same words. They don't mean them in a biblically Christian way. Same words, different dictionary. And I shared with you last week, and this is worth the course. If you, have, if you ever find yourself in a situation where a cultist is trying to, and one of the things they will do is they will try to get you to admit to common ground. They will try to get you to a place where you perceive that what they are is a Christian denomination with some differences. That's their first goal so they can then begin to argue that their denomination is in fact more biblical than whatever it is you're into. But step one is, well, you're a Christian and I'm a Christian and it's all one big happy family. The question you must ask them is this, is Jesus Christ God in exactly the same way God the Father is God? Which, by the way, is the Council of Chalcedon in 391 A.D. established that wording. They'll either lie to you or they will begin to hum and ha. And you have discovered in life, I hope you have by now, that there are some questions that if you need more than one word to answer it, a lie is being told. Right? So that's what I've said. The last time a Jehovah's Witness was at my door, I said, I've got one question for you and I'm looking for a one word answer. Is Jesus Christ God in exactly the same sense God the Father is God? And they said, well, and I said, you just blew your one word. <laughs> Any Christian answers that question with a yes, period. Arius said otherwise, that, that Jesus became sort of a God when he was adopted by the Father. He emptied the word God of much of its meaning and created this hierarchy of God the Father and the sub-deity, Jesus. His heresy sparked the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea is presently, uh, it's, it's on the Asia Minor side of Istanbul. Uh, sort of north and east of Istanbul, Turkey, Constantinople then, the town of Nicaea, when a, uh, a group of leaders of the church gathered and they formed the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is, is about the last major doctrinal statement in the early church that is at the root of every movement that calls itself Christian. All, all Protestants would hold to the Nicene Creed. Roman Catholicism would hold to the Nicene Creed. The Eastern Orthodox Church would hold to the Nicene Creed. It is primary of primary matters. Um, so I'm going to share it with you. 
We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. You see what they just did? They just ruled out that Jesus had a creative beginning. He is begotten. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, but he is not created. He is eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Now, not that he was created, but he did have a point where he became a human being at the, at the incarnation, at the conception in the womb of Mary. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Pretty basic stuff. Not basic in the sense of not exalted. Basic in the sense of foundational. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, Catholic there is not capitalized. The word Catholic there means to be viewed universally. Now, that is a rare way the New Testament depicts the church, but the New Testament does depict the church in that sense, um, at least in one, in one passage. Uh, I'm going to stop there. There's a couple more lines of the creed, but I want to chase down this, this uh, Catholic church thing. I did not bring my whole Bible with me. I printed out some verses, and I missed that one. Hebrews 12, someone who's got the means to get there. There's an ESV translator's choice that makes the word church not as visible in this verse as it sometimes is in other translations. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. Somebody who can read it out loud with conviction. With conviction. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. You have now come to the assembly of the firstborn. That word assembly is ecclesia usually translated church. There is, when viewed from heaven's perspective, the church of the firstborn. Every other time the New Testament uses the word ecclesia, it could be argued every other time is speaking of the local gathering. In fact, not to chase this rabbit too far, but anyone who says, well, I don't need to join a church because I'm a member of the universal church. 
is making that one passage in Hebrews normative for how the word is used. And it isn't normally used that way. The followers of Jesus Christ are to gather themselves in. You can't function in the life of a church if you're not functioning in the life of a church. I had this discussion with someone one time before I was um, ordained as an elder in this congregation. And I said, well, Hebrews 13 requires of you that you, that you submit yourself to your leaders. That you, the word there is give them the benefit of the doubt. Follow your leaders in Hebrews 13. As you're a member of only the universal church, does that mean everybody who's preaching on YouTube, you're accountable to them? What leaders specifically are you accountable to? Uh, um, um, um. So your, your universal churchiness is making you disobedient to that scripture. Would you like some of the others? At any rate, though, in this confession, they're affirming that we are all called together in one Catholic, one universal and apostolic church. Not as opposed to a local church. These men were local church leaders. But the reason we're all getting together to talk in the year 325 is that we can make representations for all of us. Next line. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now that, I'm stopping there too. Oh my goodness, how people have abused Acts 2.38. <clears throat> baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's what Simon Peter said. Repent and be baptized, all of you, for forgiveness of your sin. It's right there in Acts 2.38. Baptism forgives sins. Oh my, Alexander Campbell was right. Church of Christ and the Christian church, both of which still teach that baptism gets your sins forgiven. Make no mistake. One could argue that those baptisms are not distinctly Christian baptisms because if baptism finishes getting me saved, then there's somewhere in there a vein of salvation by works. But I digress. <laughs> Acts 2.38, baptism for the forgiveness of your sin. Hmm. Hmm. Preposition four sometimes means cause and effect. I had, no, I won't even try that. Baptism for the, let me, let me see, it's March. Law of averages tells me I'm probably going to get some raised hands. Any March birthdays in the room? Okay, now I'm going to push it a little bit. Any March birthdays that haven't happened yet? Your birthday's between now and the end of March. Do you, I don't need the year, but what, 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 what day in March is your birthday? Tomorrow. Tomorrow! Happy birthday! Thank you. Is he doing something for your birthday? Do you get to pick the restaurant at least? Okay, do you mind telling me where you're going for your birthday? Oxbow. Where? Oxbow, by the river, downtown. Ah, oh, Ox, I'm sorry, I'm not teasing you for your mask, I can't, I can't. What's the name of the restaurant? Oxbow. Oxbow, okay. As I get older, B versus F is a matter of lip reading. I'm sorry, it's a mask. No, and I don't mind the mask. More power to you. Ox, uh, Oxbow. Yes. All right, so you're going to Oxbow for your birthday. You hear what I just said? They're going to Oxbow for her birthday. Would anybody like to argue that going to Oxbow is causing her birthday? <laughs> now hang on, this matters. You'll never screw up Acts 2.38 if you remember this. I'm going to Oxbow for my birthday. Is it causation? Does going to Oxbow cause my birthday? What is it? It's celebration. It's commemoration. 
I'm going to Oxbow for my birthday. I am baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. It's exactly the same. It's not causation. It's celebration and commemoration. Like going out for your birthday, you are baptized for the remission of your sin. Whole denominations wouldn't exist if that had been gotten right in the mind of Alexander Campbell. It wasn't right in the mind of Alexander Campbell. So our friends at Nicaea would have understood it in the biblical sense when they say we were, we were, uh, we were baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Three sections, one centered on God the Father, one centered on God the Son, one centered on God the Spirit. Which leads to the, the question, is the Trinity, as clearly confessed in the Nicene Creed, which has, again, been embraced by all of Christianity, is the Trinity irrational and contradictory? If God is one in essence and three in person. Is that statement contradictory and therefore irrational? Only if essence and person are synonyms. If essence and person mean the same thing, and by the way, in our experience, generally they do. I am Russell Howard in essence. I am also Russell Howard in person. So much so that the idea of essence and the idea of person could be seen as synonyms in a lot of usage. Are they necessarily synonyms? They are not. The essence is in the essential characteristics of what makes God, God. God is one. But in the personalities and persons of God, God is three. That is not a contradiction. Sproul's chapter 4 defines three terms. Contradiction, paradox, and mystery. Contradiction simply is, the law of contradiction states that a thing cannot be itself and not itself at the same time. My, uh, my jacket cannot be a brown tweed and not a brown tweed at the same time. To, to state that it is would be a contradiction. If we say that God is one person and God is three persons, then the Trinity is a contradiction. If we say that God is one in essence and utterly unified in essence, and pardon me, and three in essence, that also is a contradiction. But to say that God is one in the essential characteristics of God, in essence, and three in persons is not a contradiction. The Bible is not irrational. Be very careful when you, when you retreat into a statement. And I'm gonna, we're going to talk about mystery in a moment. But be very slow to say, well, you know, there are some things in the Bible we're not meant to understand. Be careful. Be very careful. I won't argue whether or not that's true, but I don't, I have seen people flee to that instead of doing the work to understand. 
God, is, God does intend to communicate with us in his word. And he communicates in ways that are sane. Now you might say, the word of God is, is sufficient, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is not exhaustive. Meaning, there are things that are true of God that are larger than are contained in Scripture. We know everything He wants for us to know, and everything we know is true. Everything is expressed without error. But we, uh, was it, is it the end of John? Where John says, if everything, even if everything Jesus had done on earth had been written down, the world wouldn't be able to hold the books. So the Bible does not claim to be exhaustive. But there aren't any contradictions, and it's not irrational. There are some paradoxes. A paradox is something that appears to be a contradiction until you more thoroughly understand it. Sproul gives a great example. It's one of the most famous open, opening lines in all of literature. It's the opening sentence. It's either two, it's two independent clauses. So it's either a sentence with a semicolon or it's two sentences. Anyway, it's the opening words of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And I bet somebody in the room knows it. Right. Sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Well, that sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like it was A, it was not A, which is classic definitional contradiction. But a paradox is something that looks like a contradiction at the start, but when you understand it a bit more, you find it isn't. It was the best of times if you were among the very rich and very powerful in Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It was the worst of times if you were on the other end economically. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So that which looked like a contradiction shows itself to be merely a paradox. The third word that Sproul wants us to understand is mystery. Mystery is neither paradox nor contradiction. Mystery is a thing we do not fully or plainly get, grasp. A thing of which we must admit our understanding is partial. There's a mystery there. In preparation for this, yesterday afternoon I was in sermon planning. During the time I was also working on this material. And uh, a song lyric occurred to me. And it's a song that I have heard sung, but we haven't sung it here in years and I'm glad. Um, I... I don't have an issue with how old or new a song is. You shouldn't either. I have an issue with how true a song is. I, I would agree with you that we ought not sing that which is not true. Right? There is a song from a few years back, and if you love this song, forgive me. I hope I'm about to poke a hole in it for you. The song is Jesus Never Fails. Now, part of the problem with the whole thrust of the song is it seems to be saying Jesus will never fail to deliver whatever it is you most want. And that viewpoint is extraordinarily problematic. But it, the song doesn't specifically say that, so you can give it a pass on that. But one of the verses says, 
what can I do to prove to you? Tell me, how can you deny? Speaking of, of the truths of the New Testament. Tell me, how can you deny? No untold facts, no mystery. It's all so cut and dried. You want to buy whoever wrote that lyric a Bible and suggest they enter into what it is to know God through Jesus Christ. Because some things are marvelously and clearly true. I deserve hell forever. And I won't be going there. That is established. But to describe Christianity as having no untold facts, no mystery, to describe Christianity as cut and dried, how much hubris do you have to have? It's anything but cut and dried. Do a word search in Bible Gateway for the occurrences of the word mystery in your New Testament. You'll find that there are some that have been explained. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, we shall not sleep. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I am unfolding to you the mystery of the future resurrection of all who have died in Christ. Once I unfold it, it's no longer a mystery. There are several of those. But then we're also told that we see eternal things through a glass darkly right now. And one day we will see them plainly. For now, it's a mystery. There are tons of mysteries. Two of the biggest ones. Church. 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 Yeah. Body of Christ. The relationship between the church and Christ is a mystery. It's said to be in Ephesians 5.32. He, he does this marvelous paragraph. Thank you for that. He does this marvelous paragraph describing husband and wife relationships. And at the end of the paragraph, he says, by the way, I tell you a mystery. I'm talking about Jesus and his church. Wow. I've used that paragraph in premarital counseling and, and marital counseling. And I don't think I'm wrong, but it is wrong to forget that there's a, there is in the fog behind the truths of husbands and wives, there is a mystery regarding the ultimate relationship Christ will have with all the redeemed, his church of the firstborn. Amen. Three big ones. The church. <laughs> the mystery of the nature of Christ. We affirm, as we did at the beginning of our time this evening, we must affirm that Jesus Christ is entirely human. He is 100% human. He is not other than human. He's not pretending to be human. He is not the illusion of human. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He's human. 100%. And... He's God, 100%. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you keep reading John's prologue, he makes it clear that the Word, the Logos, is Jesus. Entirely God and entirely human. And if that's not, and we can affirm that, and we should. It's not a contradiction, it's not a paradox. But of course it's a mystery. Of course it is a truth we affirm that leaves us saying, how, how, how can that, how, how, how do you, how do you, and we look, I like to explain things with metaphors and similes, like, oh, you know, that's like this. 
Well, there is nothing like the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no metaphor. Well, you know, it's kind of like sometimes you look like this and someone said, sometimes, well, it's like I'm, I'm, I am a son, I am a brother, I am a father, I am a father-in-law, I am a grandfather, and I am a husband. Sorry. That, that does not give you a understanding. Because all that's saying is, if you look at me from different angles, you would give me different labels. That doesn't explain the dual nature of Christ. It is a mystery. And here we are at 732 on an evening entitled The Mystery of the Trinity, and we shall end by admitting the Trinity is a mystery. <laughs> there you go. There's your big punchline theological payoff. <laughs> but we must affirm with the Scripture a God who is one in his essence. We do not worship three gods. He is one in his essence. He exists eternally and simultaneously in three persons. God the Father, the eternally begotten God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit.